you know, it's just become so prevalent that in many ways, the government is kind of creating the very crimes and criminals that they're supposed to be searching for. Welcome back to The Live Drop. My name is Mark Valley. My guest is Trevor Aronson. He's a contributing writer for The Intercept, a journalist. You may also might have heard of his TED Talk, How the FBI Strategy is Actually Creating U.S.-Based Terrorists. Um, his podcast, The Alphabet Boys, reveals the secret investigations of the FBI, CIA, DEA, ATF, and other alphabet agencies. Season two is up in arms, an international weapons deal to arm rebels in Colombia tangles up all those alphabet agencies. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? The spy story is not all what it seems. We have an interesting conversation about the um, about law enforcement's use of sting operations, their, their limitations, and the post-9-11 expansion of powers, which kind of alter the threshold of probable cause to to instigate these operations. Uh, we also talk about the role of the informant and the agent, um, you know, drawing back to his story and his informant, Flavio Georgescu, who got involved with both the CIA and the FBI. In the end, we also talk about uh, artificial intelligence and how law enforcement could be watching your social media. Begin transmission now. Yeah, like most of my work focuses on the use of informants by federal agencies. And, you know, I think, you know, one thing I think people often don't appreciate is that, you know, the, the shady past that many of these informants have, you know, that these aren't by any means choir boys. These are people that have some really troubled history. I remember the movie The Sting in 1973. I mean, it wasn't really related to law enforcement, but it was kind of something else. But um, I remember at the end of that movie, um, you know, the music was really great and everything. And then they started folding everything up. And then you saw Robert Shaw getting into a car and being driven away really quickly. And I, I in that moment, I felt really bad for him. <laughs> I, I mean, they tried to establish that he was a terrible guy and the, the music was really great in that whole movie. But there was just something about a a sting operation where they combine theater and storytelling to me that just felt a little bit uh, manipulative. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, part of the reason I'm drawn to cover and write about sting operations is, is partly that because it's kind of like the sting operation itself is, is a, is a, is a work of theater in its own way. Right. It's, it's very kind of stage directed by federal law enforcement and there is some independent action, but it's very much, you know, a cast of characters that federal law enforcement puts together. And so in that way, you know, there's this kind of meta aspect of, of writing about a sting because you're essentially kind of creating the theater around the theater um, and, and kind of like pulling back the curtain to show what's happening uh, there. And so it's in that way, from a journalistic standpoint, from a, a storytelling standpoint, like, you know, federal law enforcement stings, I think, are really, really fascinating in that way. Yeah, the one in Michigan, the Gretchen Widmer. I had no idea there were at least a dozen of the people and like almost more of the people involved were. I, I'm kind of quoting your your work. That's why I sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, there were over. I mean, there were probably more informants than there were actually participants. I, I think what we've seen, you know, in the you know, obviously Sting's. Go, you mentioned you know the movie The Sting, right? Sting's go back decades, but there has been this evolution. In, in more recent history where stings have become more and more acceptable. You know, if you look back at like the, at the ab scam in um, the seventies where the, the FBI posed as an Arab sheikh and was bribing elected officials um, and ultimately brought down, you know, a couple of senators and congressmen, you know, there was a outrage over that and people were like, you know, the, the federal law enforcement shouldn't be doing this. You know, then you had the John DeLorean case where they set up John DeLorean in the sting and he ultimately was acquitted. And there was a lot of public, opinion that was against this kind of tactic under those circumstances. But, you know, if then you go through the drug war and you saw these types of stings become more and more prevalent. 
and then, you know, in the post 9-11 era, the use of these things in counterterrorism, you know, the, the public has kind of been trained to think, I, I think that that stings are, are appropriate and necessary. And, you know, I think you can make an argument that there are times when stings are appropriate and necessary. But I think you can also argue, as I would, that, you know, it's just become so prevalent that in many ways, the government is kind of creating the very crimes and criminals that they're supposed to be searching for through the use of these sting operations. Um, and that's kind of the underlying theme of what we want to look at in, in Alphabet Boys is like the types of cases where where this is happening. And you can kind of point to the case and say, like, would this crime have occurred were it not for the government creating the environment for it to happen through this very elaborate sting operation? Yeah, exactly. This this episode, um, yeah, season two, Up in Arms. Listen to the whole thing. I loved it. Uh, international weapons deal to arm rebels in Colombia tangles up with the DEA, the CIA, and the FBI in the same case. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Story's not what it not what it seems. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Some really compelling characters. One of the things that impressed me was a very um, uh, I, I don't know, better for lack of a better term, was like a balanced narrative. I mean, you you weren't. It wasn't a lot of dun 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 music and speculating what so and so thought. You had someone from. Um, you know, the FBI, Mark Pinto, that that you were talking to. And um, yeah, you actually talked to this character, Flavia, Flavia. So he's, Flavia, out, of, he's, yeah. out, he's out of prison now, right? He's, he's at, he's, he just got out of the halfway house um, and he seems to have found a place to live. Uh, when we were producing the show, it was kind of unclear if he was going to find a place or he'd be subjected to a halfway house. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, what I tried to do in the show is really mimic my own kind of uncertainties about the, the case, because I think, you know, so much about Flavio, you know, I mean, the, the basics of the case, of course, are that, that Flavio is contacted by a man who wants to buy uh, millions of dollars in military grade weapons for the FARC, the Colombian rebel group that at the time was a foreign designated terrorist organization. And Flavio calls the CIA and says, Hey, this guy contacted me. He wants to buy all these weapons. Do you guys want more information on this? And of course, that call was recorded and we, we have that recording. But then two years goes by and Flavio doesn't contact the CIA again and then moves forward in this arms deal, ultimately being arrested in 2014 for brokering this $14 million arms deal for the for the FARC and is prosecuted. And his story is like, well, look, I was working for the central intelligence agency to provide them with information. I, I called them and told them about all of this. And so I'm, I shouldn't be prosecuted. And the justice department's argument was that uh, that was just a cover that he, he called the CIA as a cover story in the event that he might be arrested so that he could say exactly that, like I'm innocent. I was, I called the CIA. And so what we try to do in the show is really lay out all of the facts to let the listener decide whether they're, um, you know, the, the Justice Department's argument is the right one, that, that this was a cover story, or if Flavio's argument is the right one, which is that he honestly believed he was working for the CIA. And I, I think what helps inform that argument, um, or the, the body of evidence, is that, you know, Flavio had previously worked as an informant for the FBI in Las Vegas. And so we, we get into the, his previous cases, we interview his handler, as you mentioned, Mark Pinto. And, you know, the, I think you can you know, begin to build some sympathy for Flavio's argument based on, you know, his previous actions with the FBI. Uh, but certainly, as, as we lay out, there are still a lot of questions about the case. Um, but I think that's what makes it interesting. I mean, I think we can, you know, I, my hope is that people will listen to the show and, you know, come to their own opinion about whether Flavio was, you know, acting, at least as, as far as he was concerned, on behalf of the CIA, 
or whether he was kind of an international arms dealer uh, rather than, you know, kind of our come out and say, like, this is the true story. We we really just want to lay it all out and have the listener decide. Yeah, some of the things, some thoughts sort of rose to the surface after watching it uh, this morning. Um, one of which is I kind of want to know why Mark Pinto, why Mark Pinto really didn't. I mean, you kind of hint at it that he he crossed he he operated in some gray areas, um, you know, from from time to time. Like why he didn't actually, um, you know, at least say yes, I was his. You know, I I, I did handle him for the FBI. He did do work for the FBI. But um, there was something else er- earlier on that uh, one I think he said when they were talking about the credit card operation in. Um, Las Vegas that he was working on, where he had this, where he said, you know, they just seem to be doing an awful lot of work being criminals that if they had a regular job, they probably could have made as much, as much money. And that sort of struck me with Flavia in in a way, you know, I was like, this is, if he's a criminal, he's putting in a lot of work, (laughs) you know, for sure. Calling the CIA and doing all this other stuff. It's like, you know, you, why didn't you just get another, get a job, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that is one of Mark's more memorable quotes in the show, this idea that, like, I don't understand why they're criminals, because if they put as much work into a real job, they'd be rich, right? And instead, they're, yeah. they're spending all this time being criminals. Um, and that, that is that is definitely Flavio's, you know, case. Like, you know, in Flavio's situation, regarding the arms deal, so he, he calls the CIA and he, and he tells them all about this guy named Juan and how he wants to buy these weapons. And then two years pass and he finally gets in touch with Juan. And then over the course of several months, you know, Flavio on his own dime travels from London to Romania to Albania to Montenegro uh, and all the while is like collecting what he says is information for the CIA. And, you know, so if Flavio really was a criminal, he put in a lot of work and, uh, and spent a lot of money to not really make any money because in the end, the deal didn't didn't happen. And so I think that is what's interesting, too, you know, and the, the question you know, I think is like, you know, was he doing this and spending all this time and investing all of this uh, money, you know, in the hopes that this payday would happen? Or, you know, was he doing it on behalf of the CIA? And and one of the things we explore, and, and Mark Pinto helps us explore that through his interviews is, you know, Flavio was someone who grew up in, you know, communist Romania, um, admired the United States, really wanted to become a US citizen. And in Flavio's in what Flavio says is that he was doing this because he really believes in America and he wanted to help America. And that, you know, you could, you could argue that there's kind of a cultural difference at play. Like when Americans hear the kind of phrase, like see something, say something, you know, we, we, we know if we see a bomb on a, on a, on a bus stop, we're going to report it, but we all kind of cynically think, Oh, this is just like, you know, government sloganeering. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But Flavio took that really seriously. He would argue. And, and, and what, in, in Flavio's view, I think when, you know, if you're if you believe Flavio's story, you know, if if someone is contacting him, asking him to do something Ill- illegal, most people probably would just hang up the phone, never engage in that again, not probably report it to the police because nothing actually illegal happened. But Flavio, again, if you're believing a story, felt compelled to kind of carry forward so he could find more information to then provide back to the FBI or excuse me, in this case, the CIA. Um, and, you know, if you look at his history of working for Mark Pinto at the FBI, that was, you know, very similar behavior. He was kind of on his own volition, on his own dime, going out and finding information about this organized crime ring in Las Vegas and providing that to the FBI and did that for several years. And then you fast forward to, to 2014. He appears to be doing the same thing for this international arms deal, ostensibly for the CIA. 
Um, and so it, it raises this interesting question of like, you know, what, you know, what did the CIA think about what was happening? You know, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I think is important to un- understand in the context of this is that when Flavio is arrested for brokering this arms deal, he says, I worked for the CIA, you know, I'm innocent. And of course, the DEA agent, as would most people, is 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 quite skeptical of this claim. Like, whatever, man, you're under arrest. You weren't working for the CIA. And so when Fabio is finally extradited back to the U.S., um, he and his lawyer petitioned the CIA to say, look, I'm under indictment. I want these calls. And the CIA had recordings of these calls. And, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, the question of what that means. The CIA chose to turn over those recordings as part of Flavio's case. And what Flavio argues is that was the CIA's way of saying, look, you know, he's innocent. He was he was involved in this. And we may not have considered this a CIA operation, but, he, you know, the, the, the fact that these calls existed certainly lends some credibility to his, his argument and his claim. Oh, the first person he called, she wasn't having any of it. Thank you, yes. sir. I was like, she must have gone to like customer service school or something. Why she was like not having any of it at all. No, it is actually we, my, the production, the producers I worked with on the show, um, you know, we would joke that it would, it would be like calling like Best Buy customer service. You know, like that was kind of the <laughs> attitude she had. <laughs> Saying I bought something thir- 20 years ago from you guys and it's not working. <laughs> Just like, bring it. Could you bring it to the store? It's too heavy to bring it to the store. It weighs <laughs> right. 75 pounds. I break my right. back. Right. I'm not, she's like, I'm not going to help you unless you bring it to the store. Right. <laughs> yeah. God, it was, it was heavy. Yeah. You know, this, he's from Romania, right? Flavio? You said? Yeah, he grew up in Romania. Yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to do interviews for the uh, like a uh, historical witness project for the Cold War Museum here in Los Angeles, and I remember interviewing someone from Romania. He reminded me of him somewhat, but he was younger. He was in he was like a rock band, about the same age as Flavia, and you know was getting harassed by the police. I don't know if they cut his hair or not. That was an interesting bit, but um, he did he did make it to the United States. Uh, I think shortly after the wall came down and possibly I think sometime before, but he came to the U S and uh, went to San Francisco and, you know, things weren't really working out as a music career, but he came a policeman and he joined the LAPD and he had a strong sense of, of, of duty of loyalty to America for his, um, you know, and I, I noticed that even more so with people from Romania, that must've been a particularly abusive regime because even people from, from Poland or East, especially like East Germany or even Russians didn't have that, that level of like appreciation of this ideal of America. Yeah. I, I think that's relevant to Flavio's story in the context that, you know, he grew up under Ceausescu, this very authoritarian uh, dictatorship, you know, a, a country that had more spies at the time than, than, than any other. And so that really informs Flavio's kind of willingness and and experience in America. So when he's a teenager, he listens to Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, and is kind of seduced by American propaganda about open societies and uh, and 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 free enterprise. And so his dream is to come to the United States, and and he does. Uh, but one of the things that he's ultimately saddened by is seeing his fellow Romanians running scams, being involved in organized crime. And to in Flavio's view, you know, it was his own countrymen spoiling this great place that was America in his mind. And and that was a big incentive for him to ultimately initially work for the FBI and providing information about Eastern European organized crime. At the same time though, you know, the idea of being an informant because he grew up under um, 
Ceausescu's regime, where there were, you know, thousands and thousands of informants, he really chafed at the idea uh, or he chafed at the label of informant. And he would even get mad at me at times during interviews when I would refer to him as an informant because he, he saw himself as very different from the informants of Ceausescu and, you know, to such an extent that, you know, as, as we interview his FBI handlers, like he, he did not want his FBI handlers referring to him as an informant. They wanted him to be referred to him as a friend of the Bureau. Um, and to Flavio's credit, you know, he, unlike many FBI informants who are often incentivized by, you know, monetary reward, Flavio did not accept any money uh, while working for the FBI. And so there is a kind of purity, at least in his work, um, during the FBI in the early 2000s, um, that, that's interesting. And I think, you know, if you keep that in mind in the context of his calls to the CIA and what he does in this arms deal, you can stitch together an argument that Flavio was doing this out of, uh, you know, real concern for U.S. government interests and, and the country as a whole, the national security of the country, um, in a way that I think would be more difficult to kind of, you know, stitch together that story for someone who wasn't like Flavio and didn't come from that cultural background. And I I think at the heart of the story and the questions of whether he really thought he was working for the CIA or whether that was a cover is this question of kind of the, the cultural differences at play between, you know, how an American, a natural born American would view this situation and someone like Flavio as an immigrant from Romania, having become a U.S. citizen, how, how he views it. I, I like how you sort of talk about the um, evolution of, you know, the war, the war on drugs, and then how that became the war on terror. And then there's there's always a competition for for funding from these organizations to stay to stay viable, like with the DEA and the FBI. I remember there was a show on Hulu. I think it was called Snow or something, but it talked about this. Um, it was fictional, but I'm wondering if you heard anything about it. But it was this idea that there, you know, the Americans needed money for the. Uh, uh, freedom fighters in Nic- Nicaragua, so they started selling cocaine <laughs> in, in Los Angeles to raise money for uh, the freedom fighters. I mean, I, I know it's I know it's fictional, but um, does no, that no, have no, any, that, that, yeah, that's based so, in reality. Yeah, so the the San Jose Mercury News wrote a story called "Evil Empire," a series of stories, and that was about uh, this this particular journalist reporting on um, you know internal documents that showed that the CIA was, you know, essentially funneling crack cocaine into Southern California in order to fund the Contras. And the the U.S. government at the time really attacked the San Jose Mercury News, um, calling the stories false. Um, and, you know, in the long run that those stories have held up to scrutiny, um, the journalist who wrote them tragically committed suicide about 10 years ago um, and, and really faced a lot of uh, a lot of abuse, for lack of a better word, from U.S. authorities alleging that those that its reporting was wrong, um, that it was untrue. Um, and in, in kind of hindsight, decades later, you know, much of his reporting has stood up, you know, and that there were, you know, there were all sorts of, uh, you know, between Iran-Contra and the use of the, you know, CIA covert operations to sell cocaine in the United States to fund those, you know, th- those appear to be true. Uh, at least the thrust of those that reporting, um, and it, yeah, and I would recommend like if any listeners are interested, if you look up like Evil Empire, you know CIA, it brings up a lot of those reports from I, I believe it was in the early '90s that the, that reporting first started coming out. Um, so it's just kind of a really interesting, you know, look at how the the CIA has kind of funded at some of its covert operations. You know, the question of inf- informants, and uh, one thing that strikes me is interesting is the level of ambition of criminals and 
you know, it's almost like they, they need a mastermind. They need a plan. They need some sort of action. And I just, I'm thinking of this one article you wrote about um, in, in Colorado, April Rogers, I think is her name, the girl with the pink hair who's sitting in a hotel room with two guys inviting people in one at a time and saying, Hey, get me a gun. <laughs> right? And it's like, that is actually, that is actually somebody she's writing the story. She's creating the story. She's luring, she's luring someone in. And um, I'm just wondering, like, in your opinion, I mean, these, it looks like there's all these hammers running around looking for nails. If they can't find them, they're going to make a nail. They're going to make their own nails. And, um, but I'm wondering, is there like a, is there like a level of storytelling that, uh, is there a limit to to what you can do? I mean, can you just like make, can, can these, like the FBI, can they make up these things just out of whole cloth or do they have to be sort of based on something? I mean, you know, you need probable cause before you can just, you know, inspect somebody's car, but do you need some sort of probable cause before you just start asking strangers, Hey, carry this bag, take this bag to Chicago for me. Yeah. So, so in, in some cases you can argue that the FBI is starting these investigations without probable cause. And, and the way they're doing that is, you know, traditionally, as you said, that, you know, law enforcement needs probable cause to start an investigation. But they're, they're, they're on the federal level under the FBI, there was a new power in the post 9-11 era called an assessment. And an assessment allows for the FBI to launch a limited investigation without probable cause. And and the reason for that initially was understandable, like in the, in the post 9-11 uh you know, era, you know, in the immediate years after 9-11, we were very scared of another terrorist attack. And the FBI said it needed additional powers to be able to investigate threats that did not meet the threshold for probable cause. So an example would be, you know, someone posts on, on social media or on the internet about a neighbor who has a bomb and is planning to do something. That wouldn't be enough to meet the threshold for probable cause, but under an assessment power, it would allow the FBI to investigate that person just to see if it's true. And if it was true, then they could they would then have probable cause and they'd launch a more thorough investigation. And we are seeing the FBI use these types of powers um, beyond the, the terrorism context that they were initially developed for. So what you're describing with April Rogers uh, was was part of the first season of Alphabet Boys, where the FBI was investigating racial justice demonstrators during the summer of 2020 after George Floyd's death, the protests that followed those. And um, the FBI was specifically interested in the possibility that these racial justice demonstrators were potential security threats. And they did not have probable cause, but they had... Um, the assessment power to investigate these demonstrators based on things that they said, first amendment protected activity, like we need to burn the city down things that were certainly concerning, but nonetheless protected by free speech rights. And the assessment power allowed the FBI to then launch these investigations. And these investigations included using informants or in the case of April Rogers in Colorado Springs, an undercover police officer who's working with the FBI. And what she did was a, a classic kind of honeypot um, situation, right? So she was an attractive young woman and she had kind of cast about, you know, ideas that were, you know, kind of vague that she was, she was involved in sex work. And she then invited young men to her apartment. And there was certainly an illusion that, you know, there was that a sexual encounter was possible. And then when the young men get there, um, there are two other men in the apartment who also happen to, who happen to be undercover FBI agents. And they then say, Hey, can you get us a gun? And so in that particular case, you know, the FBI, I would argue, is guilty of trying to stitch together this plot for which there was no, you know, direct evidence that the people involved would, you know, get involved in that, right? They were kind of creating the situation 
out of whole cloth. In that particular case, both men that they tried to entrap in that uh, situation declined. They didn't want to be involved in either buying or selling guns. But, you know, I think in the post 9-11 era, we've seen the, this, the huge expansion of powers where the government, you know, I think at times is guilty of running these situations and these these um, sting operations where they are the you know, where they are the maestro, right? They are, they are direct, they are stage directing everything and they are making things possible. Um, you know, one, as kind of a more general example, you know, if you look at um, terrorism stings in the post 9-11 era in particular, you know, we've had, I believe more than 350 people arrested in terrorism stings where, you know, the FBI in an undercover sting will lead someone in a plot to bomb a building or, or, you know, use grenades at a shopping mall, things that sound very scary, uh, but in, in, in the vast majority of those cases, it's the FBI providing the weapons that the defendant on his own would not likely have been able to obtain. And then in some cases, providing weapons like rocket propelled grenades that even a sophisticated organization like the mafia would struggle to get. Right. But yet through these sting operations, they're providing these weapons. And, you know, I, I think, you know, this get, this goes to kind of a funding issue. You know, the FBI is given billions of dollars to, you know, build these cases and they have to show results and, and sting operations provide a very convenient mechanism for them to say, look at these dozens of cases and plots that we foiled. And you can, you can also apply the same kind of um, in financial incentives to other organizations as well. You know, the DEA in particular with drug cases, you know, the only exception to some degree is the central intelligence agency only because it's, it's, it's the only agency that doesn't measure its success by the metrics of law enforcement, right? Like the CIA mm-hmm. is never like, let us tell you Congress about all the cases that we have. Um, whereas the the FBI, the DEA, and other federal law enforcement agencies that that do have an intelligence, uh, you know, uh, mission in the post 9-11 era, as well as a law enforcement one, still measure their success by the metrics of law enforcement, you know, arrests made, successful prosecutions. And every year, if you look at the congressional testimonies of the leaders of these agencies, you know, that's what they'll measure their success by. And, and that, you know, sting operations provide a very um, easy way for them to kind of bolster their metrics, which then allow them to secure future funding. And like any agency in government, they are not interested in like going to Congress and saying, yeah, we don't really need that much money anymore because the, the threat is lower. You know, there's always an incentive for these agencies to, to push for more and more funding. As a reporter, what are your most... Um, available sources. I mean, could you just do a freedom of information request on how a certain sting was was put together, or are you generally talking to, you know, witnesses, victims, law enforcement? Yeah, so there there are some reporters, uh, Jason Leopold and Ken Klippenstein in particular, who are really really great at using FOIA laws to get access to government materials. Um, but the truth is that the in general, the FOIA law is is broken. That you know what what both Ken and Jason, as just two examples, do is they often have to get, engage lawyers in litigation to get the documents through FOIA. Um, right. I, I generally don't go that route, although it is you know it is the kind of a arrow in my quiver and, and part of my reporting. But it can be frustrating. You know, for example, I, I have been working on this project on the ATF, um, and I requested this um, this handbook that was basically a uh, you know instructional guide to to, to using a particular tactic that the ATF has. And uh, it took three and a half years from my initial FOIA request to actually obtain that document, you know, and what that does as a reporter, obviously is like, and this is by design, but for the government is that by the time you actually obtain the document three and a half years later, 
there's a good chance you're no longer interested in the story that you were initially interested back then. And so, so, so for me, you know, FOIA is a component, but, but not a primary one. Um, you know, what I look at are, um, I look at building sources within uh, federal agencies and, and having people um, help to point me to stories or to, or to cases that I should look at. Uh, and then the other, the other component of the, the other components of this are court records, you know, often, and I tell other reporters this too, you know, federal court records are often where the secrets are hiding in plain sight. It's just a matter of going and finding them and reviewing the cases. And then finally, you know, a, a good part of my work, which is um, what, what season one of Alphabet Boys was based on is, is friendly sources leaking to me recordings or information um, that they reveal that they believe reveals a, a problem that they want, you know, exposed in their agencies. Cause I think it is important to think, you know, I mean, often my work is critical of federal law enforcement agencies, uh, but that isn't to suggest that, I'm, you know, everyone at those federal agencies is a bad guy or is doing bad work, right? My being able to expose some of the problematic practices of these federal agencies often requires help from within those agencies, from agents who are, you know, very much committed to the work their agency does, but are kind of questioning at times whether it's, you know, going in a wrong direction and are hoping that, you know, exposure through the press might enact, you know, reforms or changes within the within the agencies that they think would be beneficial not only to the agency but to the country at large. Yeah, I can see out your window behind you. There's a there's a suspicious sedan parked outside on the street. There. I, just to, I, just, I just wanted to imagine he's got like some cone thing pointed at you. I don't know what it is. Like you see in the sideline of a football game, you know, the big cone. <laughs> yeah. yeah my, um, when my sister calls me and my sister is not involved in journalism at all. Uh, and we'll just be talking about family stuff. And, uh, and, you know, we'll hear the phone clicking every now and then it's probably nothing, but we always joke like, <laughs> Oh, Oh, the, the NSA is going to be hanging up on us. Cause we're talking about our mom again, or, you know, talking about family that they're not interested in, uh, you know, just, yeah, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, but it is like, it is always kind of a, one of those funny things. I, I, um, you know, I, I there. It's worth noting too. I think, like, I try not to think too much about, like, you know, repercussions. I mean, fortunately, nothing has happened, and I, and I, I still very much believe in the American project and the idea that, you know, you know, America is a place where journalists can report critically on the government without fear of intimidation or prosecution. Uh, but there is, there is, a, you know, it's worth noting as well that, you know, in in recent years there has been this this enormous chilling effect that has occurred with the, you know, and this has happened across. Uh, partisan lines, you know, it happened under Bush and under Obama, under Trump, of the use of the Espionage Act to go after sources that are providing information to journalists, information that is, you know, I think, quite critical to public understanding of how these agencies work. And so, you know, my job, as with other, you know, as with, as for other journalists who work in this area, is increasingly more difficult, just because, you know, sources are now dealing with not just the prospect of maybe getting fired, for, you know, providing information or getting reprimanded, but facing, you know, years and years in prison, you know, under the Espionage Act. And I I do think it's, you know, there's certainly a place for Espionage Act charges, but I think, you know, the idea that, you know, whistleblowers coming forward to press are being uh, prosecuted under that is a a very troubling uh, development. Like Reality Winner, she she worked, she reported The Intercept, I guess, or she gave her yeah, yeah. So Reality Winner uh, and, and other sources have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, it's you know, something that journalists like me have to be very, you know, very cognizant of that, that our sources are at risk. And the, the truth is that, you know, and I think this is something that people who don't deal with sources often don't, don't appreciate because I think, you know, unfortunately in, in journalism, I think 
too often journalists are 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 willing are, are too willing to kind of laugh and criticize journalists whose sources are um, exposed in some way. I mean, the last thing any journalist wants is a source to be exposed. But I think what what a lot of people don't appreciate is that as careful as you might be, you know, using encrypted communications and, you know, trying to kind of stay, you know, private and confidential in your communications as much as possible and in informing your sources how to stay safe, you know, you cannot control your sources. And sometimes your sources will do things that, you know, aren't the wisest and will kind of reveal themselves in ways that had nothing to do with the behavior of the journalist or nothing that the journalist could, could do. Um, but you know, it, it happens and it's the last thing you want to happen. We, we do everything we can to prevent sources from being exposed. But, um, I think it's sometimes worth, you know, recognizing that it's not always the journalist's fault. Sometimes it's the source who makes a mistake. And, you know, and so that's another thing that's a big part of my work is that whenever I deal with sources, I, I do my best to get, explain that to them that, you know, you need to not only be careful, but understand that often when sources are, are found out, it's just because of a simple mistake the source made and that they need to be as vigilant as the journalist and, you know, making sure that they're, you know, dealing with this in a responsible way. I mean, a lot of your material, you're dealing with people who are, they like the, the sharp edge of the knife, you know? And I'm just wondering um, what you've, what you've learned from like interactions with, with people like that who are, you know, if not criminals, then crime adjacent. I mean, have you drawn any, um, you know, generalizations or actually learned something yourself? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a great question actually. And this is a question I've often asked of federal agents who recruit these informants and, you know, it's worth recognizing that there are informants like maybe, you know, you could argue that Flavio Georgescu when he, when he was working for the FBI is an example of a pure informant, someone who sees a crime thinks it's not right and provides that information to the FBI. And there are informants like that who are motivated through, you know, wanting to make the world a better place, patriotic duty. There are definitely those. I would argue that those are a minority of informants and that the majority of informants are usually motivated by something else, which is either money and informants can make lots and lots of money uh, working for the FBI, the DEA, or they're motivated by the prospect of getting criminal charges dropped or, you know, leniency in sentencing as a result of criminal charges. And the people who are motivated for those reasons, for obvious, you know, reasons are, tend to be criminals, right? And, you know, these are people who are, aren't generally trustworthy, who are kind of like, on this like edge where they're going back and forth between federal law enforcement cooperation and criminal activity. And sometimes those lines are very blurred. And, you know, I would ask federal agents about this, like, how do you hire someone who is a con man, a criminal, and not ensure that they're not pulling a con on you. And uh, what, what they say is like, that's just a necessary evil of this kind of work that, you know, the, this, you know, what they, what, you know, the phrase that's often used in the FBI is, you know, you, to catch the devil, you have to go to hell, right? This acknowledgement mm-hmm. that if you're going to find bad guys, you need your own bad guys. I do think that, you know, as this has evolved, um, I, I, I should back up. I should say that I, I think generally that's something I can agree with. I mean, I agree that if you're investigating, you know, organized crime in New York, you can't send in the Yale educated guy from the suburb and think he's going to fit in, right? You're going to pop the lower level mafioso guy who's stealing cars and leverage him to become an informant. That's just the way law enforcement operates. But I do think that over time and more recently, we've seen this shift from, informants being used to provide information and then 
agents working undercover to advance that information or corroborate that information to what we have today where informants are often leading investigations. So agents more often than not now are kind of staying back at their desk in the car and as the informant is going in and, you know, doing the undercover work that once upon a time was more often done by agents. And I I think this has a couple of benefits for federal law enforcement. One is that obviously a criminal is going to fit in exactly. You don't have to play the part the way you would an, an agent. But the other is that it provides a fair amount of leeway for when an informant maybe does what an agent wouldn't have wanted to do or isn't allowed to do under policy. So if, if an informant, you know, does something that breaks the FBI policy and the, the FBI can always say, well, you know, we didn't tell them to do that, you know, and it provides a certain safety net for them to act in ways that I think agents wouldn't. Right. You know, just as, as a simple example of this, you know, informants are used in a way to get around the guidelines that the attorney general creates for investigations. And, and one simple example of this is that under current guidelines, an FBI agent isn't allowed to create a fake profile on social media and then kind of engage people for criminal investigative matters. Why that exists, I'm not sure, but that is the guideline. And, um, and so the FBI gets around that by using informants who do the exact same thing. The informant will create a fake profile, engage people online, and the information that comes from that informs investigations. And the way they, the reason that the informant is used in that particular instance is that that allows them to get around the guidelines. And so that's just one example I think of that that is kind of illustrative of of other examples where informants are being used more often. And I think that's a really problematic place for law enforcement and a really underreported aspect of all federal law enforcement that, you know, the federal law enforcement is in many cases employing thousands and thousands of criminals and the safety measures that are in place to make sure the criminals are, are, you know, being criminals while on the FBI dime um, isn't always great. And, and I, and I think it also important to understand that, you know, agents and informants have very different incentives. An agent, you know, wants to move up in his career you know, wants to, you know, do good for the country, perhaps, if you're being generous. And I think that's often the case with with agents, that there is a there is a there is a very patriotic sense to why they got into the profession to begin with. Um, but then the informant doesn't have that incentive. The informant is there to make money and he knows he can make money or get off on, le- on criminal charges if he brings results. And so that means that an informant going into an investigation, if he if he's not able to advance the investigation, it's unlikely he's going to come back and say, you know, hey, boss, I, there's nothing here. There's no crime to, to investigate. He has a direct incentive to facilitate the crime, to push people forward, to encourage people to get involved in crime. And because he has that direct, you know, financial or leniency incentive as, as part of that. And I, I think that's why you see in, in many cases, like in Flavio's case in season two or um, in season one, the, the investigations in Colorado, informants or undercover agents kind of pushing people forward because there is an incentive to, to build these cases. Um, I often liken, you know, this to like my own profession, which is similar to other professions um, in the sense that, you know, as a journalist, if I spent months and months working on a story and I go back to whomever, whoever it is that's paying me to do that story. And I say, Hey, I spent a lot of money. I traveled all around the world and there's no story here you know, I'm going to be in trouble, you know? And so in in that same way, you know, informants and undercover agents, when they invest a lot of time in cases, then they are often kind of incentivized to find ways to make those cases. And I I don't think that's always in the, you know, best interest of justice at that point. Yeah. It's like law enforcement. They have these informants are turning into these like avatars 
<laughs> you know, that can kind of move around in this in this other world for them. It reminds me of the character of of Juan a little bit, who, when this is a movie, I hope it's played by Danny Trejo. I just should throw that out there. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> he would be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, I mean, he said he made like five, up to $5 million. And like you said, you know, I mean, on one hand, using, using, you know, informants like that, you, sometimes you realize it is almost like something of somewhat of a relief knowing that it's just simply transactional. You've identified their intentions and boom, let's, let's, let's get to work. But um, with someone like him, I just think that he would at some point say, you know, I don't know about this uh, Flavia guy. He doesn't seem like he's a real criminal, but there's no incentive for him to say that. Right. Cause he's going right. to keep getting money if he keeps, if he keeps bringing more in. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, Juan's an interesting character in the sense that, you know, he, he was initially busted by the DEA for bringing, you know, pounds and pounds of cocaine and marijuana into the United States through his job at American Airlines or Sky Chef as part of American Airlines. Uh, you know, gets thrown in prison, cuts a deal with the DEA to become a ramp cooperator. Rats. Ramp, ramp rat. He was a ramp rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. yeah, that was a great term. Yeah, the, yeah. He and he. So he he helps bust all the ramp rats at Miami Airport that were bringing in the drugs, and um, then you know converts into a professional informant, which is not an uncommon career trajectory for an informant. And, you know, as you mentioned, he testified in Flavio's case that he'd made more than $4 million working for the DEA and other federal law enforcement agencies, you know, a lot of money. And he's also, you know, traveling the world, staying in nice hotels on the DEA dime, investigating, you know, people. And so, you know, and I think Flavio's case is emblematic of that, of, of the pressures that exist because, you know, for, for, you know, there were several instances that we document in the show where Flavio is just not, moving forward. Right. And Juan is getting frustrated and he's like, what's going on? Like, you know, at one point Juan is supposed to meet Flavio in Rome and Flavio stands him up. And so, you know, for someone who's really involved in an arms deal, you know, if your arms broker stands you up after saying he's going to meet you in Italy, you might think, okay, I'm cutting ties with this guy. This, this guy is a flake. Um, But Juan doesn't. And he keeps going, pushing forward Flavio in the sting. And I, I think you can argue fairly that an incentive for Juan is that, you know, if he keeps Flavio going, that means more and more money for him. So there's a disincentive for Juan to say like, okay, this guy's a flake. He's not a criminal. He's not a threat to the United States. Let's move on to another case. At that point, like it's a fish on the hook. Juan knows if he keeps reeling the fish in, he keeps getting paid. And and that's really where the incentive is. So, you know, it, it, it kind of creates an incentive structure where, you know, the, the, the resources being poured into this case are not necessarily based on the threats this case presents to the U.S. government or the the world safety, but really directly involved in Juan's own interest in making money, and that's why he would push the case forward. Well, we're getting pretty close to ra- wrapping it up. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I really enjoyed the uh, the, the podcast. I'm going to go back and listen to the first one now. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been great, and uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the point where I usually ask a question that demands like a 45 minute answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then uh people are are you really want me to answer this one no 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 but um there's one thing i forgot to ask though you did mention something about social media exploitation in season one called somex and is that still like an active program or was is that something that's specific case specific no it's still active because it just seems like someone could like be using this i mean especially with artificial intelligence and of course there's the tom cruise movie where they predict crimes i just feels like that's all part of that uh 
there's a way to make a list of people who are most likely to commit crimes, you know, and then, uh, you know, structure your, um, you know, God, I mean, just think, think of how artificial intelligence could do this. It could just kind of structure stories and scams and stings to, to catch the people that are the top of the list on the Somex. Yeah. I think I, there is this kind of, I, I think there's this like phenomenon that's happening where like, there's no great, like, Illuminati that is creating the 1984 environment, but in many ways through these like small changes, we're kind of like stumbling into this blindly. Right. And, and social media exploitation is kind of an example of this where I think it had a good, the seed of it was good, right? Like you're, they're looking for people who were posting things to social media, propaganda about ISIS or other groups that they could then identify as possible security threats. It's like open source intelligence. Open source intelligence, yeah. yeah. And But we've seen a kind of a, an expansion of this, um, you know, in a couple of ways. So one that we documented in the first season was that during the summer of 2020, the FBI viewed the racial justice demonstrators as being a possible security threat, Right the vast majority of these demonstrators were exercising their first amendment rights to assembly and speech. And they were protesting. That should not be something that gives the government the authority or ability to mine their social media uh, pages. But in fact, that is what happened where the government was building profiles on people based on their um, acknowledgement on like I say, a Facebook event page that they were attending. And so that allowed, that gave the government a list of names of people that they could then build files on, um, as 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 protesters, and so that's an example of social media exploitation. Another is that when they arrested people in Colorado Springs, they had kind of a rogues gallery that they shared with local police of pictures, all of which came from uh, social media. Um, and you know that investigation was largely based on First Amendment protected activities as well. And so we're seeing social media exploitation being used to allow the government to investigate people without any kind of criminal predicate, without any kind of charge. And I think you could argue that. Well, these people are putting this information out there publicly. You know, it's it's there to be seen. It's as you put open source intelligence. But I, I think that there is kind of a social contract in place where, yes, you're putting it out there. But should the government be using its vast resources to mine this information to build files on you? And what we're also seeing are, you know, a number of RFPs or requests for proposals that really raise the question of whether the government is limiting its searches to open source intelligence in the sense that limiting its searches to things that people post publicly on Facebook, you know, on social media, you know, there are privacy settings on Instagram, Facebook, and others. And there, there is a perception that if you have a privacy setting, only the people who are allowed to access that information through the privacy setting access that information. And in some of the requests for proposals we've seen the U.S. government put out, they're looking for software that allows them to kind of pierce that veil and access information um, in an automated way um, that then allows them to build files. And I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the fear for this in the kind of 1984 scenario is that you allow the government a situation where they're mining all of the social media data, and then they have an artificial intelligence backend that allows them to um, decide who it is that rises to the you know level of investigation or possible threat. You know, and what we've seen from artificial intelligence already is that there are already built-in biases, right? There, there are already built-in biases because artificial intelligence is based on, you know, the information that humans have created over the last couple of centuries. And, and there's there's racial and other biases involved in that. And so I think, you know, the, the fear of this is that, you know, if you continue to expand this program into other ways, what, in what way will the government use it? That said, like what we know about social media exploitation so far is that it primarily appears to be used in the 
um, context of extremism, you know, international terrorism, um, domestic extremism, which has, you know, troublingly kind of bled into First Amendment protected activities like with the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020. Uh, but I think this is like a an area that I wish more Americans would pay attention to, which is the the extent to which, uh, you know, a lot of the information that Americans are voluntarily putting on the Internet is then being, you know, digested by federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies and and what that means and, you know, what, you know, what policies and regulations should we, should we put in place? And, you know, that the information that you're voluntarily putting on online could, you know, potentially be put in some FBI file that, you know, may, you know, end up, you know, down the line being something that gets you in trouble in some way. And I, I think, you know, these are things that I think as a, as a country we should be wrestling with and, you know, what is the proper role for law enforcement in, you know, data mining this, this information and what regulations should be put in place? Because right now there aren't a whole lot. Um, and, I, and I think that's something that, you know, really deserves a lot more scrutiny. Yeah. But go back to Mark Pino. I like what he said. You know, I just think he should have known better. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just uh, you get back to all this technology and all these options and all these different traps and stuff. You still have to sort of rely on your own you know, your own instincts and experience to some extent. Yeah. I, it's actually one of my favorite lines in the show about Flavio, which is, cause it's kind of how I feel too. It's like, yeah, maybe he, maybe it is all true. Maybe he really thought he was working for the CIA, Yeah, but he should have known better. He should have gotten a document from the CIA that said that, right. Or some sort of affirmation um, and not have that trust. And, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in that way, I think that's, you know, Mark's kind of takeaway is something that we should all, know about like if you're getting involved in any sort of you know federal law enforcement or intelligence agency investigation you know you want to you know you want to you want to make sure you knew better right you want to make sure you you your your position in that is is clear and that you're not going to be hung out to dry later as you know as Flavio was if you tend to believe you know his, his story anyway Trevor thanks for being on the live drop great time yeah yeah th- thanks for doing this with me I appreciate it That was Trevor Aronson, investigative journalist for The Intercept. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. You can check out his podcast, Alphabet Boy, Season 1 and 2, wherever you get your podcasts. End of transmission. Transmission.